This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. This is the place to hear fantastical fiction and hear from authors of fantastical news stories. This episode is another chapter in the fantasy novel Plantwise, book one in the Steward's World series. If you're ready for the magic of story, let's begin. Chapter 1 That fall in Westerland, everyone attributed the lush harvest and perfect weather to the birth of Arden, daughter of King Alfred and Queen Elise. The stories surrounding the little princess's birth spread like the firegrass that sprouted rainbows of tiny flowers after the fields had been harvested and plowed under for winter's rest. The peasants of the farming kingdom said the sun shone when the princess laughed, and rain only fell when she cried, and there were few reports of rain all that harvest, until long after the last sheaves had been brought into the barns. Plantwise Glinna felt Arden's birth, when the roots of the trees all through Westerland twitched in their loamy beds. She felt it in the unripe grain, when the milk of the kernel turned to rich ripeness in a flicker of thought. She tasted it on the harvest wind, warm and sweet and full of the sudden new abundance that flowed over the land. Arden was the one she had waited for, so many long, weary years. Glinna would gift the baby princess with her plant-wise magic. She didn't need to hurry to reach the princess before her christening, which was the most appropriate time for a gifting of such importance to Westerland and the surrounding kingdoms. Alfred was a wise man who listened to the heartbeat of the land, the breath of the wind, the tides of the air that controlled the rain. He cared about his people. He would wait until after the harvest was complete before holding the blessing and naming ceremony for his daughter and include all his subjects in his family's joy. Glinna had plenty of time to spread her plant-wise magic through the land one last time and bless the crops and farmers and their beasts in the rhythm and pattern that Yeshin had established when the maker called her to this duty. King Doyne of Stonemount, Westerland's ally on its eastern border, came for the festivities. He brought his only child, Maddox. After all, he had said in his letter responding to the invitation, his son was eight and Prince Alex of Westerland was seven, and it was high time the two boys met. They would be allies when they took up their father's duties. The people cheered as the tall, white-haired, red-faced king rode down the cobblestone streets of Portum with his golden-haired son. Those who cared about such things were marked on how alert the young prince was, watching everything with those sharp gray eyes, constantly turning to his father's advisers with questions. A boy like that, who cared about the world around him at such a young age, would make a large mark on the world. Or, so said the old gaffers who sat in the doorways and smoked their clay pipes and passed judgment on the world. I've seen country estates larger than this so-called palace, Hurst, aide to Lord Jago of Stonemount, grumbled through a mouthful of spice cake. He washed it down with sweet cider and wiped the overflow off with his velvet sleeve. It's a crying shame that you never learn table manners to go with your clothes, Jago whispered in that voice that could turn a hot spring into a skating pond. Consider what you just put into your mouth. 
Spice cake and cider. So what? It's very good, isn't it? Everything in Westerland is good. Exactly. And where does most of the food in Stone Mount originate? Jago nodded to an aged couple meandering down the other side of the table. Their faces were like rosy, ancient apples, gleaming with scrubbing above the pristine white and rainbow-hued embroidery of their festival clothes. In contrast to the abundance around him, Jago wore his habitual gleaming black, which accented the silver streaks in his thinning hair and short-trimmed beard. He was a tall, emaciated crow, towering over Hurst's slovenly, muscle-bound form. Here, that's why you keep prodding the king for a betrothal, now that these farmers have a princess, to keep the food coming. For far more important reasons than that. The old fool is a romantic. He's added to my work, insisting his son needs to win the heart of his bride. Jago rolled his eyes. Not only do I need to protect Maddox from his father's weak-minded philosophy, but I have to tutor him into seducing a woman into willing servitude. A waste of my talent, if you ask me. Have you told Dermad that he's wasting your talent? Hurst mumbled. He flinched away when Jago cast a furious glare at him and didn't see the terror under the fury. Dermad was not a master to question or criticize, even from five kingdoms away. Anyway, what does all that have to do with King Alfred living in a house Baron Capron wouldn't go near? Hurst reached for his goblet of cider to wash the last few crumbs of cake down his throat. This is a nation of farmers, my dense young friend. To a farmer, this cottage is a rich palace. Alfred believes he shouldn't hold himself too high above his own people. Don't mock those with limited sense. Pity them. They don't see the real world. They think they are happy. Hurst responded to that with a grunt. Jago sipped at apple wine and turned to look for Maddox. Despite believing his talents were better employed elsewhere, he had some fondness for the young prince. He believed himself a far better father to Maddox than Doyne. He even allowed himself some pride in the boy. He was coming along quite nicely in his lessons on proper kingship, and the role he would play in bringing the lower half of this continent under Dermad's thumb. Near the center of the bustle of happy activity in the palace gardens, the two princes, Maddox and Alex, raced each other in circles around their chatting fathers and the wide table that held the topic of their conversation. Alex was his father's son, with ruddy cheeks, hazel eyes, and thick brown-black curls. From a distance, they were just two boys, blonde and brunette, playing with that curious mixture of rivalry and friendship that waited for a turning point in their relationship. Arden's christening meant nothing to either boy, beyond speeches and having to stand perfectly still and not make faces at each other from across the wide aisle of the chapel. Up close, the differences grew clear. Maddox wore velvet and silk, and his belt knife had a gilded sheath. When he wasn't laughing and running and gasping for breath, his narrow mouth fell into pouting lines. Alex wore a fine broadcloth shirt, richly embroidered, with a leather vest. His knife had a plain grip of scarred wood bound with leather. The sheath was scarred and stained, but he cherished it, a gift from his friend, Darian, son of the captain of the guard. 
King Alfred and King Doyne stood to one side of a table, holding a map of the entire continent. Westerland and Stonemount fit together like two kidney beans from the same pod, and were close enough in size that differences didn't matter. Above them, touching both their borders, was Ambray, roughly a fifth larger than either of them. Curving around to touch Ambray on its eastern border, Stonemount on its eastern and southern borders, and part of Westerland, was Bretonwald. It was nearly the size of the other three kingdoms combined. On this pleasant day of festivities and sunshine and laughter, neither king much enjoyed the discussion that had prompted the map being spread out before them. The king of Ambre had written them both, asking for their opinion and advice on how to deal with a possible problem. Two kingdoms far to the north, beyond the nearly impassable snow-clad, jagged peaks of the Cascade Mountains, had merged into one. No clear details had passed the mountains, beyond rumors that they had been forced together, rather than the time-honored way through a marriage alliance. The disturbing consistency among all the rumors was that Dermad, who controlled three-quarters of the land north of the Cascades, had done the forcing. Troops wearing his snow tiger insignia had been spotted in small clusters throughout kingdoms south of the mountain range, vanishing and reappearing like fever-laden fog. Ambre's king hoped he was being alarmist to suspect the troops of being spies. Needing a respite from such dark concerns, King Alfred's gaze settled on his golden-haired wife, sitting among a circle of chattering, laughing noblewomen and their daughters. He had always believed Elise was a rare beauty, but today, with their daughter in her arms, he believed her the most beautiful woman in the entire world. She glowed, with no ornaments but her smile and flowers braided into her hair. Her green eyes sparkled as she looked up from the tiny bundle in her lap and saw her husband watching her. For a moment, there was no one and nothing in the world but the two of them. Coleman, Alfred's most trusted advisor, stepped up to the queen with a bow and interrupted the communion of their hearts. His hair was purest white, but he still moved with strength and assurance. Alfred hoped the man would still be there, reliable and wise, for Alex to lean on when he began his rule. "'Something wrong, my friend?' Doyne asked. "Hm." Alfred chuckled as he realized he had been staring, silent for just a few seconds too long. "'No, everything is far too right today. On days like this, I wonder what I ever did to deserve such happiness. It's like a nursery fable. I hope it remains so.' long after our children are grown. My counselors are pressuring me to request a betrothal. Nothing would make me happier than to seal our friendship by sharing grandchildren some day. Political maneuvering has always worried me. When does royal duty overrule the happiness of our children? Doyne nodded toward their sons, who had stopped their games when approached by Lord Jago. Yet sometimes we must sacrifice our heart's desires for the good of the country. If that becomes necessary, I pray, Yeshin, that Maddox and Arden will be rewarded with great happiness together. I know any son of yours will make my daughter a good husband. That is enough for me. Alfred reached for the wineskin sitting on one corner of the map and gestured at their half-empty cups. Come, let me refill our drinks to toast the future.
Glinna entered Portum at the river gate, her sandals crunching on the gravel that lined the donkey path along the side of the river. She walked slowly, feeling the little princess's presence drawing her. Though this was the day she had dreamed of with eager weariness, she felt a twinge of reluctance. And, she was wise enough to admit, some fear. She only knew stories of what would happen when she gifted the baby princess with the full store of her plant-wise magic and years of wisdom and experience. She had never met anyone who was gifted, so she couldn't know if the stories were true. The people of Westerland knew they were more than welcome to visit the palace gardens and catch a glimpse of the little princess on her christening day, to take a cup of cider and a share of the roasted boars and geese the king had provided for the celebration. Most kept their visits to just that, a glimpse, a taste, and a word of congratulations to the parents. Then they went back out through the palace gates to their own celebrations. Those who could left little gifts for the child. Sweets, knitted stockings and little shoes, quilts with blessings stitched into the soft fabric, preserves and little wooden toys. Glinna walked among the festivities that spilled out of every tavern and inn. People danced in every fountain square, where someone would play a fiddle or harp or beat a drum loud enough to give them a rhythm. She smiled, knowing Arden would love these simple, generous, happy folk, as she had come to love them in the many decades of her service. From time to time, someone turned long enough from their merrymaking to see Glenna and recognize her. Then she would hear her name called and someone would smile and wave. People called out thanks and blessings to her. Someone would offer a bit of good news. Another would run up to her with a cup of cider. Someone else would give her a bit of fancy cake or a meat pie small enough for two bites. The constant halts to talk, nibble, or sip slowed Glenna's journey, but she didn't mind. She was glad for one last chance to see the people she loved and to make her farewells. Three streets from the palace, magic tingled in her fingertips. Green-gold sparkles danced along her arms for a moment. Glinna turned to look. Ambrose! Tears touched her eyes, even as laughter rang in her voice. She hurried through the press of people, arms stretching wide. The man who strode across the square and around the well with its garland-hung roof was taller than everyone there by nearly a head. His silver hair gleamed, and the momentary silver sparkles of magic dancing on his fingertips had a slight tinge of purple. He was clean-shaven and let his hair grow long, though that small attempt at disguise did little to hide the resemblance between himself and King Doyne, who wore his hair short and his beard full. Ambrose was uncle to the King of Stonemount. He should have been king, but because of his healing gift, he renounced the throne in favor of his younger brother, Doyne's father. Ambrose believed, as Glynna did, that Yeshin had granted gifts to benefit the entire world, not individual kingdoms. My dear, it has been too long. Ambrose flung his arms tight around her. She was two heads shorter than him, thin and weathered and topped with snowy hair. But for a moment as they embraced, they were two raw children, meeting in their first forays into the wild world to test and share their gifts. He laughed as he released her and twisted the vine leaves back into her hair where they had come loose. Another good harvest, I hear, thanks to you. When the people have good in their hearts and love for the land, there really is little need for me. 
Except to remind them, of course, Glenna added with a chuckle. Then she noticed the quiet, thin, dark boy who stood like the old man's second shadow. It took but a moment to note the hawk's nose, the gray eyes, the air of gentle thoughtfulness about the boy. He and Ambrose were dressed much alike. Sturdy, earth-colored rough-spun and traveling leathers, with large belt pouches at their waists, worn packs on their backs, and walking sticks in their hands. "'This can't be Dylan, so grown up already, can it?' she said, smiling down at the boy. "'So, how do you like apprenticing with your grandfather, young sir?' "'I like it very well, lady,' Dylan responded with a bow. He touched his brow with two fingers, since he had no hat to remove. Glenna was pleased to sense that he had grown to be even more like Ambrose since she last saw them four years ago. "'He knows the basic healing herbs by sight,' Ambrose was saying, with fond pride in his voice. He smiled down at the boy, who grinned back up at him, and only ten years old. "'I can see you're going to live up to all your grandfather's pride.' "'Thank you, Lady Glynna,' Dylan said, bowing again. "'I hope so.' "'Oh, dear, so formal already?' She chuckled and bent so they were eye to eye. "'I'd much rather you called me Auntie Glynna, lad. Would you do me that kindness?' "'Gladly, Lady—' "'Auntie Glynna,' the boy said, blushing a little. "'Thank you.' She and Ambrose shared a smile of muffled amusement. "'Oh, isn't it glorious at this time of year?' I do so enjoy the harvest festivals, watching the people bring in all the crops. It feels wonderful to sit back and watch, like what you feel when a patient is on the mend. Ah, now that's a wonderful feeling, Ambrose said, nodding. But why are you here? I thought you'd be further north, preparing for winter. The princess. I felt her birth in the wind. She's the one I've been waiting for. She didn't miss the momentary parting of his lips, as if he would protest her decision, and then the understanding that dimmed his eyes. "'I'll miss you, dear heart,' he finally said. "'You're not going to argue?' "'I grow weary, too. Will you let us walk with you?' When she nodded, Ambrose gave her a sweeping, courtly bow and offered her his arm. She laughed, remembering the few times she had let him talk her into visiting the court in Stonemount. The fancy dresses his brother's wife laced her into, the silly times they spent on dances and fancy food and double-talk in court. It had been a game, one she tired of quickly. Westerland was her home, and it called her back. She had felt only a tinge of regret when she heard Ambrose had married an herb mistress. They remained friends, though years passed before they saw each other again. Dylan bowed and offered his hand to Glynna. She smiled and laughed, and the three set off again, strolling through the crowds. As they neared the palace, Ambrose's hand rested a little more heavily over hers in the crook of his arm. Glenna didn't mind. Time was short, and she preferred to spend these last few moments with her dear friend. Sunset wore bright fall colors as it spilled across the fading festivities in the royal gardens. Even the city-bound folk lived their lives in tune with the rising and setting of the sun. Lord Coman sat with the two princes on the step of the chapel in the palace gardens. Maddox fidgeted as Coman regaled him and Alex with a story of a hunt for a ten-point buck on a snowy evening. Ordinarily, he would have found the story fascinating, 
but Lord Jago insisted Coleman was a weak-willed, overly cautious man who only held his post as King Alfred's adviser because the king owed him a huge debt. How could Maddox respect such a man? Despite the pounding of his heart and the tight excitement in his chest, the prince knew this story had to be a nest of lies. It was probably a yearling doe Lord Coman chased through the mud, rather than a magnificent beast that turned and faced its pursuers before dying with ten arrows in its chest. Alex leaned against the old man's knee, taking shallow, panting breaths as if he rode with the hunting party. He never blinked, and his body twitched a little from side to side, as if he followed the wild ride of Coman's story. Maddox envied his enjoyment, even knowing Jago would say this was the enjoyment of a little boy. He understood with some regret that it was high time he grew up and put aside childish toys and games. His father was an old man and could die unexpectedly, leaving him in charge of the entire country. The young prince was grateful for Jago's advice and constant stories of how a future king should think and act. Queen Elise sat in a sheltered spot, holding her sleeping daughter. A few noble ladies were making their farewells, talking quietly so as not to disturb the baby. Arden's nurse hovered at the queen's elbow, ready to take the child whenever her mother's arms grew weary. The mayor of Portham stood with King Alfred and King Doyne at the map table, saying a last few words of congratulations to the two monarchs. His plump wife and five children waited on fidgeting legs for him to say in twenty words what most men could say in five. Still, the people loved their mayor, and Alfred valued the man's wisdom, once it was sifted out from his many words. "'Who's that?' Maddox asked, not two seconds after Coleman finished his story. At this point... Most listeners would still be in a respectful silence for the grand animal that had fought so hard to live, but the boy just pointed at the main garden gate. Yes, who is that? Jago asked, stepping from the shadows to join them. Hurst appeared at his side a moment later, holding a half-gnawed goose leg in one hand. Oh, my. Coman stared as Glynna paused in the gate to look around the gardens. How many years had it been since she had come through the gates of Portham? As much as eight or even ten, he thought. The woman hadn't changed. Still with her gleaming white hair and weathered face, her brilliant green eyes and the vine leaves twined in her hair. She held sandals in one hand, treading the grass barefoot, and the grass in a wide circle around her waved in silent greeting. A white-haired man and a half-grown boy waited in the gate, watching Glynna walk away from them. She looked back once. The man smiled sadly, bowed, and spread his arms wide, as if bestowing the gardens on her to wander through at her pleasure. The servants flitting through the garden, cleaning up the debris of festivities, paused and looked around. One by one, their momentary stillness and widening eyes marked the moment they saw Glynna and recognized her. The muted conversations dotting the garden died away, as the little knots of people reacted to the growing anticipation in the air and looked up. Alfred and Doyne turned and saw her. 